So I have, I have something for you right here. Uh, this is my little crucifix uh, that I bring on all of my uh, shut-in visits um, or, or hospital visits. If I've ever visited you in the hospital or, or at home uh, for any reason, uh, you will have seen this. It's my little crucifix, my little traveling crucifix. Uh, and uh, you can see I, I wear another one uh, every Sunday. Uh, you, you've seen this before. Uh, and uh, so uh, to remind us who, who it is that we are, are to look at, uh, especially uh, in, our, in our difficult moments, right? Uh, when I visit people uh, at home, uh, shut-in members, they're there for a reason, or people in the hospital, they're there for a reason. Uh, and any time death can come for us, and some of us may come sooner than others. Um, and uh, so this is really important to, to, to look at, to look upon. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, looking upon Christ as opposed to anything else. You'll see on your handout uh, the picture that has, I've used it uh, for, uh, to kind of advertise this uh, study. Uh, and um, what do you notice about that picture? The handouts are in the back. Um, oh, are there some here too? Perfect. What do you notice about that picture? What do you see? Angel? Saints? Yep, somebody's sick. Yep, somebody's talking. He's lying in a what? Oh, close. It's a, it's a bed. Um, it's a hard bed. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's an old woodcut from the 16th century. Uh, yeah, people with crosses. Okay, yep. Uh, now, whenever you see um, those arias around people's head, uh, those halos, uh, if they have crosses, uh, that's generally going to be um, Jesus or, or God, the, uh, the, the Holy Trinity. Um, and so you've God the Father, and then you have Jesus next to him. Um, so all the other ones with halos are saints. Um, but they're not, all, they're not all dead, are they? Um, in the back, the farthest one looks like Martin Luther. Uh, the other two uh, before him, uh, what are they holding? One of them is holding, yeah, a church. One's holding a church. The other, uh, uh, she's holding, I think, a sword or a scroll. Kind of looks like the same thing. Uh, so this morning, what did we hear? What what was the word of God? It's the sword of the spirit, right? Um, and then uh, the man in the front, uh, he's the pastor or the priest, um, and he's ministering to the person dying, right? Uh, and then you have an angel who is who is there attending as well. But then also, look at what you have below the angel. Do you notice that? Yeah, there's two of them. Yep, so if you have two of them, they're little demons, right? Like uh, a frog, yeah. Yeah, yep. Kind of, yeah, it's, like a, it's like, a, like the body of a frog with the head of a pig. Um, whatever it is, it's disgusting and... and uh, uh, it's a demon. So the demons are there, and they're trying to get the man to despair, uh, to look at anything else uh, rather than, than, than his Savior. And, of course, you have the saints there, too, which are uh, holding up good things for the man to look at, uh, reminding the man probably of his baptism in the church, right? The Word of God uh, and, the, and the priest comforting him. Uh, little, uh, there's a lot of uh, similar ones like that too. Some of them ha are just full of demons. Uh, this one isn't. Some are just full of demons, and they're holding up all these different things, all these different artifacts. Uh, basically, all the man's, it could be holding up the man's family, or holding up the man's earthly possessions, anything the man, anything that would, would, would steal the man's attention away from from, from Christ in his last moments, right? That's the goal of the devil, to steal our attention 
to steal our gaze away from Christ in our last moments. Let me read you the quote that's on your sheet there. Gerhard says, It is appointed for all to die, but to die with piety, to die in Christ, to die happily or well, is not for everyone. For if at any time our clever enemy conspires against our salvation and tries to rob us of it with all his might, it will certainly be at the last hour of our life. It is for this reason that some of the ancients say that the infernal serpent bites the heel, for he knows that if he is overcome by us in that final conflict, all is well on our part. However, it will be our eternal disgrace and doom, however, in the balance of our life, like a play, is well acted in parts, but in that final climactic moment, we conduct ourselves in a dishonorable and cowardly manner. For this reason, he assaults our hearts with various trials, as with a battering ram, in times of sickness and in our struggle with death. Blessed is the one who rails at this point. Uh, so the devil uses sickness, and when people are near death, uh, that's when the devil tries his hardest because he wants us to steal. He wants to steal our attention away from Christ. It's no wonder that uh, you know whenever a, a big, terrible event happens or a pandemic, right? People are just thrown in a frenzy because they don't know what to do, right? As we heard in our in our epistle lesson. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and authorities, the rulers of this dark age, the devil and his demons, right? That's who we're fighting against, even though we can't see them. But we, we do things that we can see, at least by faith. Uh, the serpent, the fiery serpents and the fiery serpent. Uh, I'll read you this from Numbers, Numbers chapter 24. When they journeyed from Mount Hor to the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought up us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Right, that's the manna they had, and they're despising even that. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Uh, now, in Hebrew, the word for fiery uh, you could, is like, you can think poisonous, right? Poisonous snakes, but it's also the word for bronze. Uh, so bronze has the color of fire, right? So God sent fiery serpents. These bronze, fiery, poisonous serpents that, that sting. They bit the people, and many of them died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have sinned and spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. What were they concerned about? Was there anything special? Or what were, they, what were they concerned about initially? Why were they grumbling and complaining? Yeah, starving to death. They were, they were looking at their own lives, uh, how terrible our lives are, right? Uh, and, then they were, and then the snakes came, and they worried about dying, uh, even more so. And so God makes, uh, he tells Moses to make this bronze uh, serpent. Is there anything special about it? Why? Why did looking at that bronze serpent on a pole, um, and by the way, you can think of the, the pole looking, like, looking a lot like this cross, right? To put a bronze serpent on, you've got to have a cross beam to, to hang the snake on, right? So it looks a lot like this. Was there anything significant about that piece of wood and that piece of bronze, that snake, that image? Yeah, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of the cross of Christ. Um, now, you know, so think of the cross of Christ. Is there anything about this? So this is a chunk of metal, not bronze. Uh, but think of the real one, the wood one. Is there anything special about that chunk of wood? You know, if you go to it, if you could find it today, if you could find a piece of the original cross, having it in your house, uh, or, or dangling it around your, your neck, is there anything special about that? Will that, will that save you? No. 
Um, so same, same thing with the, the bronze, snake on the cross. Um, it didn't save, but what saved was the trust in that, the faith in that, right? God was calling them to faith. Um, and faith in what? His, his word, his promise. So God promised, if you look at this, you're going to live. Uh, now that's pretty foolish. It's a piece of wood and a piece of bronze. Um, and so those who thought it was stupid and foolish and a waste of time, not worth it, the ones who thought they could tough it out, you know, we're, we don't need to look at this stupid thing. Uh, what happened to them? They died. They died. But the ones who humbly recognized their sin, not just their sickness, right? The ones who, who recognized that they had sin and not just, you know, we're, we're sick and we want to get better or, oh, we better, we better do something now because we're sick and we want God to help us. But actually, the ones who recognized their sin and then believed in God's promise, they looked at the serpent and they lived. So this is a, uh, it tells us something about where we should look and, and what saves us. There are three fears that hold our gaze uh, in death. Um, death, hell, and, or death, sin, and hell. We've talked about death uh, a, a bit. Uh, I've got three large quotations for each one of these, and I'm going to skip to these uh, right now, and then we'll come back to each one. These are all from Luther. So the first one is death. Luther says, death looms so large and is terrifying because our foolish and faint-hearted nature has etched its image too vividly within itself and constantly fixes its gaze on it. We're obsessed with death, right? Uh, and, you know, we always think about, you know, we think the worst of it. And moreover, the devil presses man to look closely at the gruesome mane and image of death to add to his worry, timidity, and despair. Indeed, he conjures up before man's eyes all the kinds of sudden and terrible death ever seen, heard, or read by man. You know, why is Halloween so, so uh, popular? Think about that. And then he also slightly suggests the wrath of God with which he, the devil, in days past now and then tormented and destroys sinners. And that way he fills our foolish human nature with the dread of death while cultivating a love and concern for life. So that burdened with such thoughts, man forgets God, flees and abhors death. And thus, in the end, he is and remains disobedient to God. We should familiar, familiarize ourselves with death during our lifetime, inviting death into our presence when it is still at the distance, at a distance, and not on the move. At the time of dying, however, this is hazardous and useless, for then death looms large of its own accord. In that hour, we must put the thought of death out of our mind and refuse to see it. How ironic is that, you know? When death actually comes, don't think about it, right? Uh, put, that, put that image out of your mind. Do your, do your, do your duty. Think about death before it happens, so that when it happens, you don't have to think about it. Uh, you know, studying for a test. Why do you study for a test long in advance, not just the night before, right? Same thing. Uh, Luther says, the power and might of death are rooted in the fearfulness of our nature and in our untimely and undue viewing it and contemplating of it. Let me read that again. The power and might of death are rooted in the fearfulness of our nature. Does death have any power in itself? Luther says, the only power death has is because of the fear in my own nature and my untimely and undue viewing it and contemplating it. So death has no power, right? Christ says this. We, that was our Old Testament lesson. Christ uh, says, uh, death has lost its sting, right? Death is overcome. It has no power, no power over us. But we fear it, not because, of, not because it has power, but because of our sinful nature, right? Does that make sense? Um, and so, uh, we, we, looking at death, uh, right? The Israelites died, um, um, because they didn't look at look in faith uh, with to what that saved to the thing that saves. Um, I think of another example: Lot's wife. Uh, actually, maybe I'll, yeah, right here. I've got this uh, for you on your sheet. Lot's wife looks back and dies. Genesis 19. And when the dawn came, the angels urged Lot, 
Get going. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here so that you will not be swept away by the guilt of, of the city. Right? This is Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what happened to them. Uh, by the way, this just made news uh, just a couple of weeks ago. They, they, discovered some, they discovered because uh, of um, the minerals in the area that that area was destroyed about the same time by a huge uh, asteroid, a meteorite, that exploded into the sky and, and it, it consumed the city so hot that everything was just obliterated uh, instantly uh, for, for miles and miles and miles. So this, these are, these are non-Christian scientists that discovered this, that happened, right? And so we have this in, in the Bible. Uh, the Bible isn't against science, uh, right? Science, uh, science is under, under God's command, too. Um, let me, uh, verse 16 here. But Lot was taking too much time, so the man grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, in the hands of his two daughters because of the Lord's compassion for him. They didn't, they didn't let him out because his faith was so strong. Right? He was taking his time. He was trying to save, like, uh, like you know, when, when uh, your house is on fire and the fire department says, get out, don't, don't go, don't try to get everything out, right? Because your house can go up in just a matter of, of like, a minute. Um, same thing. Uh, so a lot wanted to save everything, but he was taking too much time, so they grabbed him out. When they'd taken them out, one of them said, run for your life, don't look behind you, and don't stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains so that you will not be swept away. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire out of the sky from the Lord. He overthrew those cities, as well as all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew in the soil. Uh, scientists discovered that uh, this meteorite, uh, um, actually, it, it, it obliterated and uh, had, was so hot, and it, it basically killed the ground and all nutrients in the soil, so that nothing actually grew. So modern science is confirming what Christians have known for thousands of years. Um, and then verse 26, But Lot's wife, who was behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So she looked back. Uh, she didn't trust, right? Um, she looked back. She wanted to save, you know, she was more concerned about the world. Than, than her future eternity. And so she looked back and, and died. Um, the hymn to the right, What is the World to Me? Uh, again, a good one. We sang it, I think, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, it, we won't sing it now, but, but take a look at that. Uh, right? Our hymnody teaches us something. What is the world to me? Um, Spagenberg says, There are those who think that they are Christians but still cling to what is created and depart unwillingly, indeed often with hearts that are halfway in despair. They lose the temporal blessings of this earth and the eternal blessings of heaven. Therefore, throughout their entire lives, Christians should be learning to die to what is created, to lose those things that might draw them away from their love of their Creator. Um, when, you know, when we're talking about the fear of death uh, and looking at death instead of Christ, that generally manifests itself in one of three fears. Uh, and I've talked about some of these already. The fear of being forgotten, right, of leaving a legacy. Uh, it could also be a fear, well, it's really a fear of your reputation. Uh, so it's a it's an Eighth Commandment issue. Um, God gives you your reputation. And how does he give you your reputation? Well, through all your stuff that you have and your family. Uh, so Fourth uh, and, and Seventh Commandments, right? Don't steal uh, and honor your parents. Uh, so God gives you these things, and they build up your reputation, but they're all gifts from God. Uh, they're not to be prized in and of themselves. They're not to be loved more than the one who gave them to you. But sometimes we do. Um, it could also manifest itself in a fear of the unknown, just of death in general, of dying, of pain. Um, and then a fear of uh, providence of loved ones after they die, or after you die. So you want your loved ones to be prepared for and taken care of when you die. And this is the one that we're actually instructed to worry about and take care of before we die. Um, 
But talking about families, uh, Gerhard, uh, this next quote here for you, says, um, As our whole heart must be given over to the love of God, whatever is given to another person or thing is subtracted from God. God is a jealous God, right? He doesn't want to share, uh, even with your children or anything else, as we, we heard today. Uh, so if you're, if you're giving your love to anything else, means you're subtracting it from God. Um, and Gerhard actually says, take care that you do not obscure your love for the highest good by an inordinate love of this life. Um, think of the communion hymn, uh, Lord, may thy body and thy blood be for my soul the highest good. Um, so if you love something because of the thing itself and not because of your love for God, you actually end up loving God less. Um, so the proper way to, to view everything that you have, your family, your gifts, your possessions, is, is to love God first, and because you love God, then love your family and your possessions, everything God has given to you. So you love your creator first, and then your family. Uh, oftentimes we, we turn that around and we say, um, you know, I'm thankful for my family, uh, and, and we should be, we're thankful for our family as if that's what makes God good. As if that's what makes God good. He gave me my family, and so he must be good. Uh, rather than, well, he just is good, and because he's good, he's given me all these blessings. Um, Gerhard says, the love of the Heavenly Father is to be placed before the love of children and the love of Christ, the bridegroom. Um, or sorry, the love of the Heavenly Father is to be placed before the love of children and the love of Christ, the bridegroom, before the love of wife. The gift is not to be loved more than the giver. If you love them dearly, you will receive them more dearly in the life to come. In that life, we will know each other even better than we do now. If your relatives are dear to you, let Christ, your brother, be dearer to you. And he actually gives an example. If you, he says, if you like talking, if you like conversing with your family, if you think that's a good thing, just wait. Just wait till you get to heaven. You'll be in the holy city of God, and you'll be perfectly united with, with your family, with all the saints, all those who have been made righteous uh, and perfect. Imagine the conversations you'll have then, right? Uh, now, you know, whenever we have conversations, uh, you, know, you might talk for a, little, for a while, and you go... You know, some people last longer than others without fighting or bickering, but everybody fights and bickers, right? You know, even the closest husband and wife. Um, but imagine when you get to heaven, there'll be none of that. So you'll, you'll be even closer in heaven than you are now. Sin is the next fear. Luther says, sin also grows large and important when we dwell on it and brood over it too much. This is increased by the fearfulness of our conscience, which is ashamed before God and accuses itself terribly. Man finds himself so unprepared and unfit that now even all his good works are turned into sins. As a result, this must lead to an unwillingness to die, disobedience to the will of God, and eternal damnation. This is not the fitting time to meditate on sin. That must be done during one's lifetime. Thus the evil spirit turns everything upside down for us. During our lifetime, when we should constantly have our eyes fixed on the image of death, sin, and hell, right, during our lifetime, we should constantly have our eyes fixed on the image of death, sin, and hell. As we read in Psalm 51, my sin is ever before me. The devil closes our eyes and hides these images. But in the hour of death, when our eyes should only see life, grace, and salvation, he at once opens our eyes and frightens us with these untimely images so that we shall not see the true ones. So sin, looking at sin. Uh, this is probably the one that we like, uh, we, we fear the least. Uh, you know, this, remember this was Luther's big struggle, uh, what led him to actually become a monk. He was so fearful of his sin, and he viewed God as a righteous judge who would condemn him. And so Luther thought he had to make uh, up for all of his sins. And so he went and became a monk. And so his sin terrified him. It, it led him to despair. And ultimately, he, he went down the, the wrong path to become a monk, 
which led him to a better path, reading the Bible, where he learned of God's grace. Um, but in our day, I don't know if we think about sin like we ought. Uh, we certainly don't think that we're sinners, uh, right? We think we have problems and whatnot, but I'm not, I'm not that bad. And you hear this talk at funerals too. Uh, oh, so-and-so, oh, Grandma, they, she was such a, a good person. Uh, well, if, if she was so good, she wouldn't be dead, uh, right? Uh, and Augustine says this. So Gerhard quotes Augustine. He says, we have lost our health because we have offended our Creator by sinning. The only reason we get sick is because we're sinners, right? If we, were, if we weren't sinners, we wouldn't get sick. If we weren't sinners, we wouldn't die, right? When Adam and Eve, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them to live forever, right? God did not intend them to die or, or to, to get sick. Um, and they were perfect. They were, they were righteous. They had no sin. So if we did not have sin, we would not get sick uh, and we would not die. Now, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, that uh, there's a couple of places in the Bible where uh, the disciples asked Jesus, well, Lord, who sinned, this man or his, or, or his parents, that this man was born blind? Well, that's not the case. That's not how sin works. Sin infects everybody, right? Um, it's not that we do a certain sin and then therefore God just punishes us because of that one sin. Sin just infects us and makes us susceptible to sickness and death. It's a symptom. And so we, we really have it backwards. We think, uh, you know, why would God let me suffer? I'm good. Uh, you know, if we were so good, we wouldn't die. Uh, and so think of this with uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and the Lord's Supper. When Paul says that for this reason some are sick among you because they're not, they're not um, recognizing the Lord's body and blood, uh, they're sinning against the Lord's body and blood, and therefore they're actually getting sick. Uh, we we kind of skip over that, but uh, they were actually getting sick because they were sinning against the Lord's body and blood. Um, and that's kind of an illusion of the serpents, too, right? Uh, the Israelites were grumbling and complaining. They weren't using the manna that God had given them in the right way, so God sent serpents to them to, to infect them, make them sick and die. Same thing was happening again to the Corinthians. And right before that, Paul says, all these things happened in the Old Testament. They were, they were real, but they happened for your example, that you would not do the same thing they did, uh, but, but to do as God wants you to do. And what did the Corinthians do? They do the exact same thing that the Israelites did. Uh, and we do too. And our conscience then tries to justify itself by, uh, by doing the right things or, or convincing itself that, that it does the right thing. Um, was there a question? Did somebody say something? Yeah. You know, and it's so, it's so modern and popular to say, oh, well, God is love, right? And what do we mean by that? It means, well, I have a license to do whatever I want, right? I have a license to sin. Sin is not that big of a deal. And so we don't feel the guilt because we don't actually think sin is sin. Um, right, exactly, exactly, yep, yep. And yeah, if, you know, if God did punish us, like he ought, you know, that maybe that would, maybe that would help us. Uh, but God is just. He doesn't, um, and he does things out of his mercy. Uh, he's not just this horrible judge who is just looking over our shoulder, uh, right? You know, when I was a kid, you know, those bracelets were really popular. What, what would Jesus do? WWJD. Such law. It's so terrible. You know, uh, as if Jesus is always looking over your shoulder. Are you doing the right thing? doing the right thing, um, rather than, you know, God lets us, he lets us sin, right? He gives us the freedom to sin. He doesn't want us to sin, he gives us the freedom. Um, and then he does everything out of his grace and mercy, not because we sin or have faith. Um, 
He does everything out of his fatherly grace and mercy, as, as the Catechism says. Uh, let's see here. Conscience. Uh, Bernard says, the next quote on your, on your handout, Bernard says, Therefore, if you feel the worm of conscience in this present life, you ought to suffocate it and not keep it forever before your memory because it will rot your conscience and give birth to a host of never-dying worms. Do you love that image? Uh, so your, our consciences can be um, corrupted. They're already dull. We don't have perfect consciences. Jiminy Cricket was wrong. Your conscience should not always be your guide. <laughs> should some of the times. And God has given it to you uh, for your good, but it's not, it, 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 it itself is not purely good. Um, and the conscience, you know, this, this can even be matters in things that aren't necessarily commanded or forbidden by God. So I can have a bad conscience regarding things that aren't even in the Bible, that aren't commanded or forbidden by God. Uh, and, and, so if in my conscience I believe that I've caused harm, like if I believe that I've sinned, this is what Paul was getting to at in 1 Corinthians about his talk about not eating food sacrificed to idols. Some of the weak Christians, if they, if they ate that food and they later realized it was sacrificed to an idol, they would just feel so guilty in their conscience. And, and if they did that, who would they be looking at? Uh, and not Christ, right? Then their own action and, and their unworthiness. So this could be even in things that are not necessarily sinful, but once we believe they're sinful, then, then that makes a difference. Uh, and uh, so this is really big today. Some churches have waded into the realm of imposing rules and demanding things of consciences, uh, especially with regarding, uh, in regards to vaccinations, right, on both sides, uh, where, where some churches will say, they will, they will impose it on your conscience that you have to do this. It's out of your love for your neighbor. And others will, will take the other opposite extreme and say you, you should not do that, just purely out of conscience. And, and on both sides, those churches are demanding things of conscience and imposing something on your conscience. And that's, that's, that's to be fled. So you flee with the plague. Uh, not, not free from the plague, but flee with the plague. So flee those churches, get the plague, but keep your conscience pure. Uh, it's less harmful to die with the plague than to die with a conscience turned away from Christ. So we want our conscience to be, to be always directed at Christ. And so the solution then uh, is, is to repent and then to believe, to look to Christ in faith. Gerhard says, if the hour of death draws near and you repent because you are deprived of the opportunity to sin, your repentance is false because you have not really abandoned your plan to sin as much as the occasion for sin has abandoned you. Uh, right? So we need to repent. And this is, a this is what punishment does a lot of time too. Sometimes we just leave sin because we're afraid of being punished. You know, we don't want to be found out or have our parents get upset at us and punish us, and so then we don't sin. Not because we're truly repentant, but because we're just afraid of being punished. Um, but, Gerhard says, if your heart condemns you, nevertheless God is greater than your heart. If the memory of your past sins accuses you, nevertheless Christ, the Redeemer, who has made satisfaction for your sins, is more powerful, and through him you have peace of conscience, a restful heart, and a blessed tranquility of soul. I have one verse here from Song of Songs. A dove, or, which is the soul. The Song of Songs is a beautiful book. We, we looked at it last Advent, or two Advents ago. Uh, a dove, which is the soul, flies to the rock, which is Christ. My dove is in the collapse of the rock, in the hiding place of the mountainside. Let me see how you look. Let me hear your voice, because your voice is pleasant and you are lovely to look at. Bernard says, the infernal hawk presses hard and pursues your soul, the devil, right, the hawk. Therefore, 
let your soul flee like a fearful and terrified dove to the cliffs of the rock, which are the wounds of Christ. Uh, the hymns to the right, there's two there. Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, uh, uh, takes that imagery from Song of Songs. And uh, where do you find your, your consolation when you're... Uh, let me hide myself in thee, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed. Right? Be of sin, the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Uh, so you hide yourself in the cleft of the rock, which are the wounds of Christ. Uh, you know the next hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. Uh, the author is Bernard of Clairvaux. That's the same guy who, who just commented on this Song of Songs. Uh, telling us that the infernal heart presses hard, so, so flee like a dove to the rock. So you know this, this hymn by him, uh, No Sacred Head Now Wounded. And he says, uh, uh, The joy can ne'er be spoken above all joys beside, when in thy body broken I thus with safety hide. O Lord of life, desiring thy glory now to see, beside thy cross expiring I breathe my soul to thee. Be thou my consolation, my shield, when I must die. Remind me of thy passion when, I, when my last hour draws nigh. Mine eyes shall then behold thee, upon thy cross shall dwell. My heart by faith enfold thee, who dieth thus, dies well. Who dieth thus, dies well. So a good conscience is a forgiven conscience. It means sin is forgiven. 1 Peter 3. Christ is put to death in flesh, but made alive in spirit, in which he also went and made an announcement to the spirits in prison. These spirits disobeyed long ago when God's patience was waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In this ark, a few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the guarantee of a good conscience before God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So a good conscience is not a conscience without sin. A good conscience is a conscience that has been forgiven. Luther says, Come to me all, you will labor and are heavy laden, and I will help you. In this way you may view your sins in safety without tormenting your conscience. Here sins are never sins, for here they are overcome and swallowed up in Christ. So you can view your sins in safety when you are hiding, when your soul is hiding in the wounds of Christ. When you find your refuge, you take your refuge in the wounds of Christ, in something that is outside of you, right, where you are not depending on your own strength to make up for your sins, right? Maybe in your last moments you're lying in your deathbed, and there you remember all the things that you never did. And all the times you were terrible, you were a terrible husband, or a terrible father, or a terrible wife, uh, or a terrible child, uh, and you wish you could have done things differently. Uh, there you, you look to Christ, not to yourself, but to Christ. Uh, and Christ says these sins are not sins because they're covered up, they're swallowed up in Christ. So Bernard says again, let the passion of our Savior Jesus Christ be your final refuge and only remedy for your sins. It is able to help you when your wisdom fails, your righteousness proves insufficient, and the merits of your holiness give way. There's one final temptation. And I'll try, to, I'll try to go through this quick. Luther says about hell, Hell also looms large because of undue scrutiny and stern thought devoted to it out of season. Right? All these things happen because we are looking at them in the wrong time. Uh, this is increased immeasurably by our ignorance of God's counsel. Man looks with suspicion upon God so he soon desires a different God. In brief, the devil is determined to blast God's love from a man's mind and to arouse the thoughts of God's wrath. In the end, he cannot save himself, and he falls prey to hatred and blasphemy of God. What is my desire to know whether I am chosen or other, other than a presumption to know all that God knows and to be, be equal with him so that he will know no more than I do? Right? I want to know God's will. I want to know uh, if God... Uh, I want, I want to know what God's plans are for me, when I'm going to die, and I want to make sure that I'm going to go to heaven, right? And what is all that other than 
uh, trying to make God's will equal with mine. Thus, God is no longer God with a knowledge surpasses with a knowledge surpassing mine. Then the devil reminds us of the many heathen Jews and Christians who are lost, agitating such dangerous and pernicious thoughts so violently that man who would otherwise gladly die now becomes loath to depart this life. When man is assailed by thoughts regarding his election, he is being assailed by hell, as the Psalms lament so much. He who surmounts this temptation has vanquished sin, hell, and death all in one. Um, so, many people look for a reason to be angry with God after a loved one dies. You know, maybe the person never went to church. They had zero signs of faith in their life. Right? Uh, didn't confess Christ, maybe even, even uh, willingly and in their right mind actually condemned Christ and said they want nothing to do with Christianity. And, and, and you know, those people get upset then because they can't have a church funeral. Uh, you know, we, we want our mind, you know, they're looking for a reason to be angry with God, not the person. And so we want to believe that all people are generally good, you know, except maybe Hitler and, and maybe more recently Donald Trump, you know, at least the way most people view, you know, because they hate him so much, right? So they, they compare him with, with Hitler now. Uh, uh, and, and so, you know, maybe those people will, will go to hell, but uh, everybody else, well, we're generally good. We're, people are generally good, right? Um, and so to concern ourselves and blame God uh, with why someone didn't believe or why someone didn't go to heaven, um, that's not only misdirected, but also dangerous for us. Luther says, you must not regard hell and eternal pain in relation to predestination, not in yourself or in itself or in those who are damned, nor must you be worried by the many people in the world who are not chosen. After all, and I love this, you have to let God be God and grant that he knows more about you than you do yourself. So let God be God. Um, on the other hand, uh, some people will view themselves as being so far out of God's grace they're such a terrible sinner. And again, this is one of the temptations that devil hurls at people in their last moments. Um, this is why suicide happens. One of the reasons suicide happens is that people view themselves as being so lost that not even God could help them. Right? Um, and they believe God maybe gives his, his word to them, uh, but not with the intention to communicate to them the gospel. Uh, and so Gerhard responds that this is, this is a false teaching a double predestination, he actually goes right to the heart of it, double predestination is not uh, a right teaching, it's false teaching, that God would condemn some people to hell, that some people would be outside of God's grace, that God wouldn't want to help them. That's a false teaching that's led many in error. Uh, Gerard says, indeed, if the scriptures testify by words, Christ by tears, and God by oath, right, words, tears, and oath, that you have those three, that if he desires none to perish, that he wishes the death of no sinner, then by what appearance of truth are you able to say that those who possess an absolute hostility toward God are excluded from salvation and the saving work of the mediator? And this is such a comfort, right? Because the worst of sinners can then be saved. It doesn't matter how evil you are or how much the world hates you. The worst of sinners can be saved. And if God wants all people to be saved, and if the most evil people are saved, then that means you are saved. It means you are saved. Ephesians 1, he did this when he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. He did this in accordance with his good purpose of his will and for the praise of the glorious grace which he has graciously given us in the one he loves. And so Luther closes all of these, all these three fears, death, sin and hell. And he says, but he who wants to fight against them and drive them out will find that it is not enough just to wrestle and tussle and scuffle with them. It will prove too strong for him and matters will go from bad to worse. The one and only approach is to drop them entirely and have nothing to do with them. So drop them entirely. But how is that done? It is done in this way. 
You must look at death while you are still alive and see sin in the light of grace and hell in the light of heaven, permitting nothing to divert you from that view. I love that. So you look, so the antidote to death is life. So while you're still alive, you know everything is God, that God has given to you. He's given you your life, your possessions, your family, your friends, uh, your house and home, your goods, all your possessions, as a sign of how much he loves you. If he's done that, he's certainly going to take care of you in the one to come, in the life to come. So look at death while you're still alive, right? Look at life as the antidote to death. And then you look at sin in the light of grace. Look at the cross. Jesus has done everything out of his grace, not because you and I were so good or perfect or holy or righteous, but purely out of his fatherly grace. And then you look at hell in the light of heaven. So read uh, all the pictures of heaven uh, in the Bible, in, in Revelation, uh, and look at it not so much as a book about God's judgment, but, but about comfort for heaven, a picture of heaven. And so you do that, and then you permit nothing to divert you from that view. So you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus. And by the way, uh, heaven is described as having no sun or moon. It doesn't need a sun or moon because what's the light? Or who is the light? Jesus. Yeah. Uh, the hymns to the right, again, look at those. Uh, Salvation unto us has come. And then, by grace, I'm saved. Uh, let's see here. It's already 11.23. I don't want to, ta- I don't, I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, we're gonna, next time, we're gonna, we'll begin. We'll look upon Christ. We've already been kind of doing that uh, in each one of these. But, but next time, we'll look more firmly at Christ. So maybe we'll, we'll, go, one more, we'll go one more week. We'll end the first week in November. Um, but... Uh, We'll, we'll start there. We'll look upon Christ next time. Any comments, questions, concerns? Yeah. John, John chapter 10, I think, yeah. And yet here we're getting a, con- a conflict there of that devil in the last hour who will steal everything from you. How do we balance that with what John was done? Yeah, yep. So when the devil tries to do that, he's opening your eyes to the, to the reality of your sin, to the reality of death, or, or no, sorry, the devil's a liar, right? He's the accuser. That's what his name means, accuser, Satan. So he accuses you. He always lies. He tells half-truths. And so he lies to you in your last moments, and he gets you to misbelieve, to, to believe wrongly about death, about sin, and about hell. And if he gets you to believe wrongly about those things, then he can get you to not believe in Jesus. And then, just like the Israelites you know, who turned away from the, the bronze serpent that would save them. Um, that's what the devil wants us to do, to, to, turn, to get us to turn away from Christ and to not rely on Christ um, in our last moments. Now, in our last moments, um, and, and this is why Luther says we need to think about these things before death happens, so that when our last moment comes, um, we are looking at Christ and we're not permitting the devil to let us misbelieve or fall into temptation and despair, um, but to look upon Christ. Um, because, yes, nothing will snatch us out of his hand. Uh, he is like a, like a, a shepherd, uh, and, and the sheep are his, and he's not going to let anything happen to us because we are his. But that doesn't mean 
we can't misbelieve. And if we do misbelieve, that's not God's fault, right? It's not, it, that's our fault. Um, and so this is the thing about predestination, double predestination. It's a false teaching where if you put that in, so that's where the conflict comes in. If God is the one that's you know, not saving people and sending people to hell. Um, no, God wants all people to be saved. God wants you to be saved, and he will save you. Uh, but if you're not saved, that's not God's fault. It's not because God lost you. It's because you have another God. Um, um, does that make sense? Anything else? You're, something, Rick? All right, let's close. Um, uh, on, your, on your, well, turn to hymn 593. We're going to get to this hymn uh, in the next section, uh, but we'll, we'll get a preview of, it, preview of it now. We'll close with hymn 593. 593. On my heart, imprint thine image. Um, so what are we looking at in our last moments? What, what do we want imprinted on our heart? What image do we want imprinted on our heart? It's the image of Christ crucified, right? So let's sing this together. Uh, so it goes, do, 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 do. I'll, I'll start here. Let me uh, give you the starting tone. Mm-hmm. 